it's kind of a revelation. A sudden realization of something. An aha moment is magic. It's like a little light bulb going off over on top of your head. That moment when everything clicks. Your heart starts beating a little bit faster, you get goosebumps, and then something just kind of blindsides you. Kind of like getting hit by a truck. You have this moment of clarity where all of a sudden things just make sense. I think it's a moment where you have to step outside your comfort zone. When you take that leap from thinking about it and then actually doing it. That moment that we can do this, there's nothing stopping us. Just say, okay, well this is what I'm gonna do and follow through with it. Many of us product practitioners have gone through aha moments when it all started to make sense. A point of sensory elation, a time of knowledge, and that time when a product destiny reveals itself to you in full glory. However, there is always a series of trials and errors in the lead up to such an aha moment. Some credit them to rigorous data analysis and many, especially higher up in, on the ladder, credit them to a gut feel. In fact, a study by Fortune Knowledge Group found out in a survey that 62% of executives in that survey credited gut feelings and other soft factors in their decisioning. In the world of product definitions and designs, we as practitioners have always experienced such moments where we had all the data, but we had to rely on our gut to make a call and then we tasted success. To discuss this, I have invited today two of my guests for a conversation on such aha moments in their life. I have Prabhu Subramaniam, lead architect at Shiftleft, and I have Dharmesh Gandhi, who is head of products at Rento Mojo, and formerly a product manager from both Amazon and Uber. This is Sources and Sinks, and this is your host, Alok. So Prabhu, static code analysis, a user experience has always been a hard problem to solve specifically making code analysis work out of the box has been a dream that has been chased almost from last 20 years. When did it occur to you that you could solve it? It's a, it's a good question. Uh, even I went through this uh, same hardship of implementing SaaS tools on some of the projects. I think the real haha moment uh, occurred when I uh, discovered this file format called Sarif. SARIF stands for Static Analysis Reporting Interchange Format, and it is a format uh, from Microsoft and received a heavy, heavy community contribution. Uh, if you look at the SaaS tools uh, in general, most tools struggle to solve the problem of uh, standardizing the input for analysis, as well as generating a common output for all the results. Uh, in general, a core design principle, you can argue, is uh, users should not have to think about the input parameters, whether it is jars or directories or files, or the output formats, uh, XML, JSON, SARIF, right? They would expect the uh, SARIF tool to take care of all the input and output parameters and um, kind of just work 
uh, isn't it? And I felt that the uh, existing products didn't um, uh, implement that core principle correctly. And uh, Sarif, I saw it and I was like, uh, yeah, my, my gut feeling was that will make a great file format for a, a DevSecOps tools and uh, went yeah. on to use it. Mm-hmm. So why was the problem so hard to begin with? Uh, I think it's a it's a difficult problem for uh, traditional security vendors uh, to even uh, comprehend the uh, the nature of modern DevSecOps, the nature of uh, this agile-based uh, cloud-native deliveries, and uh, come up with a solution. The in fact, the problem starts with the uh, the user uh, uh, security vendors are trying to target. For for a DevSecOps tools, uh, during the initial sales conversation, the users are uh, CISOs and security analysts, right? And then the uh, the products get picked, and then the implementation of the product happens. and And during that phase, the uh, users are DevOps and sysadmin people who roll out the product. And post the implementation, the ultimate end users are developers um, who will be the every users of uh, DevSecOps tools, including SaaS products. So ideally, the product should target the developers and the DevOps personals, even though the money would come from the security or the cloud budget. The way I try to solve this problem is by going to developers directly and uh, giving them a DevSecOps tool that they can install in their own IDE, in their own CI pipelines, and uh, they don't need any configuration or any training or approvals. Understood. So. Uh, let's uh, move to Dharmesh now. So Dharmesh, in your previous avatar as a lead product manager at Amazon, you did launch a pro- unique advertising product. So tell us briefly what it does and what was the revenue growth during those years? Sure. Thanks, Alok. Um, yeah, so um, I, I created something called Native Shopping Ads. Um, let me tell you a bit about it. So native shopping ads was an e-commerce focused ad unit, uh, targeted at product centric websites, you know, sites like cnet.com or AndroidCentral.com, with the objective to really increase the product centric advertising supply for Amazon advertising. Right. So this was a direct to publisher offering, right? Essentially where we were competing directly with, you know, uh, players like Google with their AdSense product. So as the name suggests, the ad unit recommended products from Amazon or from its third party sellers or vendors. It was really designed to blend into the page content as far as its look and feel was concerned. It is a responsive ad unit that automatically figured out the amount of container space provided to it and appropriately showed either two, four, six, or even eight products in some cases. And the key thing was that it's in some cases it would even inherit the page colors so that the unit really looked a part of the website instead of like a typical ad. And it, it saw pretty good success, right? While we did around 3 million in the first year when we sort of launched it. In the second year, we grew to 88 million. And uh, you know, in the third year, we sort of generated around 195 million. So pretty good uh, growth rate over the year, mm-hmm. three years. So what was your greatest aha moment during your journey in defining, managing this advertising product? Sure. I think the biggest aha moment came actually with the previous product, right? Which had failed. And when I say it failed, the performance as you know, measured by ECPM was around 10 cents or so. 
which essentially uh, led to a huge attrition where the publishers really tried the ad unit and then uh, removed it since they saw that the average performance was fairly low, right? So from my perspective, you know, uh, 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 instead of cribbing about it, it became like a rich source of data and insights. So the idea was to figure out what was working and what wasn't working in the previous product. So in that analysis, a few things came out, right? One was the pages which were talking about uh, product content were performing very well. Um, however, others weren't, which is sort of obvious given that we, it, uh, it was a native shopping ad sort of a uh, unit from Amazon. Uh, another thing which came out was all the dynamic pages like home pages and gateway pages weren't performing. And one of the key hypotheses which came out was that people on an average have a lower purchasing intent when they are on these pages as they're more in the discovery mode, right? Pages which are lower down the funnel, let's say, you know, like an iPhone 11 review page had a higher degree of purchase intent. Now, this was a critical piece as well as conversion rates were concerned. So from an average performance perspective, we had to also avoid high traffic home pages, which are lower in terms of purchase intent. So that was sort of the first thing which came out. Second was placement. That was another key thing. I saw that all the end of content placements were performing really well. And two hypotheses came out of this. First one, unlike let's say a site rail placement where people have banner blindness, end of content placement is in the user's reading flow. Second hypothesis, the purchase intent is the highest when the user has finished reading that particular, let's say product article. The mm. so placement came out to be a key thing. And the third insight which came out were more from publisher discussions and not from data, right? So publishers clearly called out that they were reluctant to provide any standard IAB sized ad placements as they already had their existing waterfall or header bidding implemented there. And what we wanted was a dedicated slot, which they were reluctant to give. But, you know, that wasn't the case with an end of content placement, which from publishers perspective was not considered a premium slot you know, as it had a low viewability, right? Just around 25% of the people who sort of opened the page went down to the end of the page. But interestingly, from our perspective, it was a premium slot, right? So at that moment, I knew that, hey, we have a sweet spot here. Our entry has to be via non-standard format ad units, right? So based on this, I proposed the native shopping ads product, you know, got the approval to do a beta. And the initial results with those beta websites were pretty encouraging. In fact, the eCPMs that we were able to get even in the beta timeframe were beating those that Google was able to provide, you know, of course, in the niche that we were operating in. So that's what really got me the funding internally to start scaling the product. Hmm. So you actually had your aha moment from a failed product and the analysis driven out of it. Uh, that's very interesting. Yep. So do you think it was a gut feeling induced decision for you to do the next thing or was it there some data analysis powering your thinking? So now as you can see, look, this, I would say around 70% of this was data analysis. 30% of it was, you know, more customer discussions and, you know, some of it, I would say was also a bit of gut where that gut was sort of honed via more of web research saying, Hey, you know what? Uh, things could work, right? Mm -hmm. 
So, you know, let's come to you, Alok. Um, you know, you have mentioned that about your unique journey through a product of yours during your tenure at Imperva. Tell us more about that. Yeah. Actually, that product was called Attack Analytics or Attack Narrative, as I used to call it internally. So as a background, Imperva is a web application firewall company, and that's their main product. So this product, uh, a web, web application firewall, protects your website or your web application for various kinds of attacks and informs you about the incidents that have occurred. So Attack Narrative, the, the product that we eventually launched, was to solve the problem of an ever-growing number of incident alerts, so thousands or millions of uh, incidents per day that were almost impossible for humans to decipher any meaningful insights out of them. They can't say who's attacking them, how it is done, because it's so much data. Attack narrative basically crunched these millions of incident alerts in plain English said, this is what happened. Hmm. So how did you figure out the actual problems from all the complaints that you were hearing from customers? Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, this was a pretty unique journey and it was not a planned one. So when I joined Imperva around in 2015, I was given or handed over a backlog of 5,000 feature requests uh, that were filed over the last five, six years. Almost 50% of them strangely were focused on improving the view of alerts and filters. You see that most of the products have those reporting dashboards and they have alerts and filters so that you can figure out what uh, your users or what as a user you want to see. Now, this was a very strange for a security product. Uh, And I won't go into the details of that, but my gut feeling told me that I should not take these feature requests at face value and rather investigate what are they trying to solve, uh, which is causing this glut of such focused feature requests. So what I did did was I took a trip to visit around 10 customers in their settings. And basically what I did was uh, what in product management research is called ethnographic research, where you just observe your user as they go along using your product and just see what they're doing with those alerts and filters. Uh, What are they exactly trying to achieve? So this research actually lasted over 20, 30 days. I traveled, flew over to multiple places in the US. And it gave me very fascinating insights. What I found out that these users were looking for insight to tell to their bosses every evening in plain English, this is what is happening to our websites. For example, after looking at so many number of alerts, they should be able to say to their uh, chief security officers that we were actually attacked by five bots today and we were able to block 70% of them And for the remaining one, this is what we are planning to do. But the problem is that it's just beyond human capacity to do this analysis meaningfully in few hours. They just couldn't do it. So the aha moment was to say, why can't a machine do that job for them? How can we have an AI-driven product that will crunch these things? But the aha moment would be to say this in the simple English so that they can read that analysis and basically tell to their chief security officers, this is what is happening. And that was it. This product, when we eventually designed and it came out, it became a roaring hit, at least to the direct users who were impacted by that. So yeah, that was the story. So, but let's come back to you, both of you. 
Dharmeshan Prabhu, if I had to ask you what you regularly rely on to make your decisions, is it gut or is it data? Which one you would choose and why? You can only make one choice, not both. So let's start with Prabhu. Okay, so for one choice, I would go with gut. Uh, I think data is another tool in the decision-making process, uh, but for a new product like Scan, the data from customer feedback and GitHub, uh, they're not there yet in terms of quality. As you know, I'm just starting to do webinars to introduce Scan products. So essentially I'm trying to teach the market the benefits of an open source DevSecOps tool. So probably it'll take a while for the customers to try it out, use it and come back with good quality uh, feedback. But till till that time, I think it'll be my gut, gut deciding the roadmap. And uh, of course, uh, the team has good experience with the with customers, with, with, with the field. So we will use those. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, that, uh, thanks for uh, kind of giving that insight. So Dharmesh, what do you think? In my opinion, gut feeling works after you've spent a long time in a certain domain or a company and you've pretty much internalized the customer needs. So gut feeling is just years of data and customer insights. So initially I prefer to set up regular customer feedback sessions as well as do uh, KPI review sessions where you know I can really dive deeper into the data and build hypothesis. Now, of course, what to look for in those KPI dashboards is something that gut feeling definitely helps with. Uh, it's of course highly contextual. There could obviously be cases where you have to make decisions without data, but at least when I'm starting out, I love to start out with a structured uh, data perspective. And probably mm-hmm. as I go on, I like to start relying on more on my gut feeling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in my case, essentially, uh, I kind of fall between both of you. I have been watch a lot of data, but I have seen that, especially as uh, Prabhu said, in the brand new products, uh, I have relied on some level of gut, what I feel. And I think uh, as a product manager, at least this is what I believe, 50% of your job is to trust your guts. And uh, and basically, uh, but keep on testing them as you go along so that you fail fast and get the feedback pretty soon. But I think that was a very enriching discussion overall. Thanks a lot, both of you, Dhamesh and Prabhu, for joining me on this podcast. Thanks, Alok, and thanks, Dhamesh, for sharing your insights. I, I think I learned a lot today. Thank you. Thanks, Alok. Thanks, Prabhu. It was a great discussion.